Discipline. You've recently promoted to the rank of Technical Sergeant, which has led a change in your duty title and responsibilities. Now that you're the NCOIC, some of the other NCOs in your work center have difficulty adjusting to your new role. A few weeks go by and you notice several infractions, profanity, tardiness, and foul behavior, but are fearful of correcting because you don't want to be known as a strict and uptight NCO. You receive an email from the superintendent requesting to have a meeting with you the next day to discuss a few concerns observed in your work center. Automatically, you feel anxious and at fault because there were plenty of opportunities to correct unprofessional conduct. Chief Executive Officer Jack Welch of General Electric once said, before you're a leader, success is all about growing yourself. When you become a leader, success is all about growing others. How does one instill professional growth? Well, you've grown or went through growing pains throughout your military career. The people that have made or continue to make a significant impact on you, you call your mentors. An instrument they use that allow them to carry on our Air Force values and instill those qualities into you is discipline. In this chapter, you'll build on the knowledge you learned in Airman Leadership School when it comes to discipline, to become an effective NCO for your people and organization. In order for you as a supervisor to understand how to create an environment that minimizes or eliminates the necessity for imposed discipline, you'll look at a few discipline definitions, examine the DM and PDP. By the end of the chapter, you should be better prepared to lead and manage units and model professional military attributes as evidenced by your comprehension of discipline. Now that you know what will be covered in this chapter. Let's begin by getting a clear understanding of discipline and how it affects the ability to accomplish the mission. Introduction to Discipline When you hear the word discipline in the military, what are the immediate thoughts that come to mind? You may think of structure, time management, persistency, or even a drill sergeant leading a flight. The thoughts that come to mind are not wrong or right, but they come to mind because of your experience in the military. When you take a step back to look at the ultimate objective, it's to achieve or set a standard to thrive. In our family business, U.S. Air Force, discipline is vital. It's much easier to follow others' directions even when it's wrong. Why is that? Because no one wants to com compromise their relationship, friendships, or feel like they don't fit in with other airmen. You should try to follow good directions of an NCO who is disciplined and set forth the correct standards for others to follow. If you follow the directions or ideas or actions of others, of an NCO who is undisciplined, you are guilty of undermining the effectiveness of your subordinate, you, yourself as an NCO and your unit. Therefore, it's up to you as an NCO to change the direction by using discipline, even when others are being naysayers to ensure that order, standards, and regulations are followed for subordinate NCO and mission effectiveness. In this section, you should be able to enhance your traits when it comes to discipline by learning the purpose of discipline. Taking the time to learn the purpose of discipline as well as becoming familiar with the types of discipline should enhance your effectiveness as an NCO. With that in mind, your excursion begins with covering the purpose of discipline. Purpose of discipline. Given the nature of your duties and responsibilities associated with your rank, discipline is crucial. You may have witnessed it or have been part of a group of people that believe structure and discipline are overrated. However, there comes a point where someone has to step up and give orders or direction. 
If you don't enforce and maintain good order and discipline, the mission will fail. In the face of adversity and difficulty, discipline enables individuals to pursue what's best for those around them, their unit, and the Air Force. Think of it this way, when it comes to team sports such as basketball, football, soccer, or hockey, at the end of the season, the one holding up the prize trophy is a team that had individuals that had the desire and discipline to work cohesively to accomplish the most difficult tasks during their season. Think of that team as your current unit. The discipline allows your team to operate faster than the enemy opponent does, gaining advantage, generating decisive force and achieving desired results. It also enables unit leadership to stop undesirable behavior quickly and to maintain or increase the unit's mission effectiveness. From this, we can say that discipline defines what it means to be an Air Force professional. Through the teaching and instillment of standards and discipline, you as an NCO should honor and respect the rich heritage which the Air Force is founded upon. Discipline also ensures the future success by inspiring those you work with to adhere to and exceed the standards. Standards and discipline are the foundation of what is professionally, legally, and morally correct, and as such instills trust. It is this definitive trust in one another and in the Air Force that shapes and toughens our spirit de corps, sense of pride, and the Air Force culture. Often we emphasize one type of discipline at the expense of another. For instance, you allow yourself to become so task-disciplined that you fail to recognize the necessity for discipline of other types. The ultimate solution for you as an NCO is to create an environment that minimizes or eliminates the necessity for imposed or forced discipline. However, eliminating a Eliminating imposed discipline is not always possible. Therefore, as an NCO, you must understand why and how to impose discipline when necessary. As an NCO, you're limited to the preventive and corrective approaches to discipline, which you'll learn more about in the PDP section of this chapter. This fact alone creates the undeniable necessity for you to understand discipline and fully employ the preventative and corrective actions available. Let's begin with some definitions. Types of discipline. General George Patton, a strong disciplinarian, stated, If a leader does not enforce and maintain perfect discipline, they are potential murderers. Since discipline is so important, you need to understand what discipline really is. Discipline is training expected to produce a specific character or pattern of behavior, especially training that produces moral or mental improvement. It's a state of training resulting in orderly conduct. Discipline isn't meant to be negative. Instead, it's designed to train and guide an individual toward improving performance or behavior. By this definition, it's easy to see why discipline is an important aspect of work center performance. If you don't understand what discipline is, how can you ensure it's maintained and enforced? Military discipline. This is founded upon respect for and loyalty to properly constituted authority. It's the mental attitude and state of training which renders obedience instinctive under all conditions. Imposed discipline. Imposed discipline refers to the enforced obedience to legal orders and regulations. It's essential in combat or in emergencies when there is no time to explain or discuss an order. Most Air Force training teaches you to carry out orders quickly and efficiently.
during peacetime. A continuation of this type of discipline provides the structure and good order necessary throughout the organization to accomplish the mission or a task, regardless of the situation. Self-discipline. A willing and instinctive sense of responsibility that leads you to do whatever needs to be done. Far above your acceptance of imposed discipline, self-discipline reflects your personal commitment of the job, setting priorities, and denying some personal preferences for more important values, duties, and missions. Task Discipline How well you meet the challenges of the job. First, you must recognize that the job is important and how well you perform will influence the effectiveness of your work section and your unit. Task Discipline requires a strong sense of responsibility in performing your job to the best of your abilities, volunteering for the tough jobs, and working overtime, if necessary, to accomplish your mission as it relates to the Air Force mission. Group Discipline Since most Air Force jobs require that several people work effectively as a team, group discipline is very important. Just as you must have a sense of responsibility to your job, you should also have a sense of group responsibility and effective team membership. You must pull your own weight, and at times, you may have to deny some personal preferences for the good of your group, section, and unit. Your team building character is a great area to focus on group discipline. Unit discipline. A state of order and obedience existing within a unit that involves airmen's willingness to do good for the unit. It demands habitual but reasoned obedience that preserves initiative and functions even in the absence of the commander. Remember, it's not about me, but about we and whatever is best for the institution. Preventative Discipline processes or actions designed to keep someone from doing something undesirable. For example, initial feedback sessions are a mandatory process designed to inform subordinates of policies, procedures, rules to hopefully prevent potential infractions and UCMJ violations down the road. Adverse Administration and Punitive Actions Discipline these are quality force management tools available to supervisors, superiors, and commanders. These management tools help instruct correct and improve those who depart from standards of performance, conduct bearing, integrity, and whose actions degrade the individual and unit's mission. Administrative tools are corrective in nature, not punitive. Punitive actions are also considered corrective tools, but in most cases, result in a permanent bad mark in the member's service record. When properly used, administrative and punitive actions contribute to unit discipline and unit morale and enhance mission accomplishment. Standards are morals, ethics, or habits established by an authority, custom, or an individual as acceptable behavior. From the terms you just covered, you've seen one common element that's, that's right. Discipline is at the heart of each one of them. You'll have an opportunity in the progress check to apply what you just learned. In this section, you learned about the purpose of discipline and several types of discipline and its many facets. You've gained a better understanding that discipline is more than being a strict disciplinarian. It takes pride, commitment, and healthy relationships by pulling your weight and holding one another accountable to create discipline at all levels. As mentioned previously in our family business, USA Air Force, discipline is vital. 
So are you going to be the one to change the direction when others are wrong? Guide others in realizing that substandard behaviors are unacceptable? After all, those people you decide to impact positively or negatively every day are your brothers and sisters and servants. You make the choice on how you'll carry out your duties and responsibilities. Now that you understand what discipline is, what do we do with it? As you have read, without discipline, the people, the unit, and the Air Force cannot be as effective as possible. Let us look at the discipline model, DM, and the progress discipline process, PDP. Types of discipline, military, imposed, self-discipline, task, group, unit. Learning opportunity, how could a lack of discipline in your job potentially cause someone's life? How does discipline help you, your subordinate, and your mission be more effective? Progress check, question number one. Tools for discipline. When is the last time you were involved in issuing paperwork? What was the outcome of the selling session? Did you reach your desired outcome while maintaining a positive relationship with the person or group involved? Over time, you may have engaged in some form of the DM and PDP. Therefore, the big question is, how can you utilize a DM and PDP effectively without causing others to become unproductive in the organization? What if we told you there was a secret formula you could apply to mitigate corrective and punishment actions from occurring? This would most likely alleviate the stress you incur while having to issue paperwork or discussing punishment actions with your commander and leadership to rehabilitate subordinates who fail to meet Air Force standards. Well, in this section, you'll gain a broader understanding from a 30,000-foot view how the DM and PDP work together to set the standard through discipline. With that said, you'll begin with taking a deeper look at the DM. Discipline model. Prevention, correction, punishment. Think of a time when you walked into the base exchange and noticed the security forces deterrent sign for shoplifting. What was the first thing that came to mind? Most likely you thought of people who made a poor choice to shoplift and the actions that followed after. Just like the security forces shoplifting sign, this model works as a deterrent to prevent discipline issues because when people know punishment for misbehavior, they may choose wiser. When people see violators being corrected or punished, this will also work as a deterrent. When used appropriately, the DM sends a message to three specific audiences, the violating member, the unit, and the community. The violator feels the message because his or her life is being dramatically affected by it. The unit sees people held accountable when behavior falls below standards, and the community sees that the Air Force does have a disciplined force. The discipline model, DM, is a system of three arenas that, if used correctly, can help uphold standards and discipline in the Air Force. The three arenas consist of prevention, correction, punishment, and are intended to build upon one another and if taken seriously, each preceding arena can serve to preclude the following arena. What can you do within your span of control? Effectively setting the stage for those you lead begins with putting that sign out, just like the shoplifting sign. 
only you need to communicate it in person by telling your subordinates and teams to prevent further actions from taking place. Take a look at what measures should be taken in the prevention arena. Prevention. Of the three arenas, prevention is the first. The goal of prevention is to prevent or stop problems before they occur. The unethical behaviors that go against what govern our core values are de detrimental to the personnel or productivity of a work center. Supervisors who exercise preventive measures are less likely to face as many major discipline issues in their work centers. Prevention is all about setting standards or line of acceptability, establishing rapport, and creating a climate of accountability. You as a supervisor, leader, and technical expert have to set the platform for appropriate behavior by promoting and enforcing standards consistently, not just when it's convenient. Your conduct in the duty section or work center can be a deterrent to disciplinary problems. When a subordinate sees that you follow the standards, strive to incorporate the Air Force, Air Force core values into your daily activities and demonstrate self-restraint and discipline in your own behaviors, your subordinates are more likely to emulate those behaviors. Likewise, if someone is disrupting the duty section, peers are more likely to communicate with you about the situation rather than allowing it to affect morale. When you use a new supervisor under your charge, they'll feel stronger in addressing negative behavior when they have your support in enforcing standards. An important part of prevention is communication. Effective communication clearly informs the standards desired performance, support available, and your expectations. Personnel are less likely to hide problems, engage in destructive, destructive behaviors, or perform in a substandard manner if they have a clear understanding of where you stand on these key topics. Formal and informal feedbacks are not only excellent methods for informing subordinates of Air Force expectations, but about your expectations as well. Constructive feedback sessions, thoroughly prepared ahead of time and tailored toward the individual, are valuable tools for you and your subordinates alike and it keeps the lines of communication open. Leading by example is also a key element of prevention. Subordinates who see you setting and adhering to Air Force standards, working hard on a regular basis, and accepting the consequences of poor choices are much more likely to strive for that kind of behavior themselves. Likewise, subordinates who see you breaking rules, producing inferior or minimal products, comprising integrity, falsifying documents, lying, and other similar behaviors are more likely to mimic those behaviors. These attitudes and behaviors will breed an environment of decayed values and mission corrosion. If this were to occur, rest assured applying the Air Force core values will revive your work center environment. In an article published at Hill Air Force Base in 2010 titled, The Best Enlisted Leader I've Ever Met to This Day, Lieutenant Colonel Dwight Hintz shares a remarkable story shown below that he experienced as young enlisted airmen entering a work center where the motto, Excellence in All We Do, was a set standard by a motivated NCO. One of the first things I noticed about the work area and the first thing I always remember about it is Technical Sergeant Geidner made a posted 
and a placard on the outside of his dock office where the other two phase docks could plainly see it. We set the standard. Yep, that sign like his grin was another indication he was cocky. However, he backed it up. He led our dock to sustain a 96% plus quality assurance pass rate. I scrounged that fact up from my airman performance reports from 1989. The other two docks never came close. He loved to write ZD, zero defects on the phase flow tracker board after QA left every week. Tech Sergeant Geidner had what I've come to call a top 1% attitude. I call it that because he made Chief Master Sergeant top 1% of all airmen and because he believed what almost no one you meet in aircraft maintenance believes. Most F-16 maintainers are convinced that because the jet is pretty beat up, by the time it gets to a phased inspection and because it's such a complex machine, QA can always find something wrong no matter how hard or how many airmen look it over before QA inspects it. Not Tech Sergeant Geidner. He inspired, inspired us to believe we were good enough so there was actually no way QA would ever find something wrong after we finished our maintenance and final self-inspections. It just became normal to our, Z, our team to get ZD ratings because it was that way when we got there and always stayed that way. I do remember clearly one time we failed for one single piece of foreign object debris on the whole jet. Our pride was stung and Tech Sergeant Geidner was, uh, let's just say he was real mad. As you can see from this article, applying the core values is an excellent combination of communication and leading by example. Standards come from many sources, for example, Air Force instructions, joint publications, TOs, and commander's policy letters. Standards also come from supervisors. As a supervisor, you often set duty hours, dress and appearance standards, quality and quantity of work standards, and customer service standards. Standards can also come from long-standing customs and courtesies from traditions developed within individual units. For example, security forces typically have technical sergeants and below stand at parade rest when addressing senior NCOs. One of the most important things you must do is provide subordinates with clear standards. It's unreasonable to hold people accountable for standards they're confused about or aren't even aware exist. Creating accountability lets subordinates know that you as the NCO will follow through if disciplinary actions need to be taken. The Air Force requires you to provide formal written feedback to all subordinates at specified times within 60 days of assuming supervision, midway through the rating period, and within 60 days of the closeout of a performance report. Formal feedback requirements are extremely important and valuable mechanisms for informing subordinates of the standards and for keeping them apprised of changes. The feedback form also provides documentation pro proving subordinates were informed of the standards. Feedback is a constant. There is one way of providing it, therefore you should also be aware of informal feedback. Informal feedback is just as important as formal feedback, and some might even argue that it is important. It is more important. You should provide informal feedback on a daily basis. Daily informal feedback helps establish and build rapport, which will help your people thrive. It also prevents future problems, and if problems arise, is key to helping resolve them on the spot. 
When you were a young airman and had a solid professional relationship with your supervisor, you were willing to take the advice he or she gave and correct substandard behaviors. When you fell short from the standards they set you they set for you, it made you want to raise the bar to show them how much you valued the standards. How do you create the same effort with the people you lead and manage? Well, it begins with you, understanding your people's interest, who they are, and what drives them on a daily basis. You've either experienced this firsthand as a subordinate or supervisor, or seen it afar. A supervisor who states, I'm disappointed in your performance or behavior or actions or decisions. You failed to meet the standards. This statement can be taken lightly or seriously by the people you lead. Think about it. When you've taken time to establish rapport with your people, subordinates, they're more willing to perform above the standards you set, and when they fail to meet the standards, the sentence above is taken seriously. Subordinates want to know how well they're doing in relation to the standards. Whether they're meeting, exceeding, or falling below standards, they want and deserve to know. After a couple of months of working there, Tech Sergeant Geidner called me in one day and directed, notice I did not say invited, me to come to his house the next Saturday at 0600 hours. He gave no reason. He spent the entire day with me tearing the header off my $450 Opel's engine, cleaning parts and putting on a new gasket kit he had bought in advance. I met his wife and children and they fed me breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He did not ask me questions directly about my life, but just engaged in general conversation. By the end of the day, I had a fixed car, but more importantly, Tech Sergeant Guider knew a lot about me, where I came from, what I liked, what made me tick and what I wanted in life. From that day on, he went out of his way to help me become an Air Force officer. Moreover, I was completely loyal to that leader for spending this Saturday with me. I don't remember how he knew my engine had a leaky header. Maybe he overheard me talking about it. As you can see, Tech Sergeant Geidner understood the importance of establishing those relationships with his people. When you build rapport, it makes communication flow easier. Sometimes rapport is established naturally because you have several things in common with others. However, when it becomes difficult, you can't simply give up. You have to work at it to build a line of communication. When you establish those lines of communication, it enables you to be more effective illustrating the standards and direction you want to set forth. Demonstrating the willingness to hold subordinates accountable, good or bad, by providing feedback is an important aspect of prevention. This is crucial because prevention is only effective when subordinates are convinced that you're observing them and you're willing to correct and reward their behaviors. In addition, verbal reminders and the willingness to hold subordinates accountable help build subordinate self-discipline. Address discipline issues at your level quickly and firmly and this should avoid it getting to the point of needing commander level involvement. You are actually protecting your airmen by being tough on them when appropriate. Always pull them behind closed doors for counseling, admonishment, and reprimands. Take that extra time to recognize and push your airmen by submitting them for, for awards when appropriate. When your airmen know you care, they will not want to disappoint you and will stay on the straight and narrow. 
Even with the tremendous amount of time and effort expended in the prevention step, there always seems to be a small percentage of subordinates who just don't get it. When that happens, you have a myriad of administrative tools that you learned about in ALS to assist you in helping wayward subordinates correct their behavior. This is when you enter the correction arena. Ideally, effective application of prevention prevents all disciplinary problems from occurring, but we know that isn't reality. Unfortunately, we don't live in an ideal world, so let's explore the next arena of the DM, correction. Correction is designed to address ineffective and inappropriate behavior and seek to bring subordinates' behavior back within acceptable boundaries using the least amount of force necessary. This is accomplished by using the PDP, which is critical to the correction arena. The PDP will be specifically addressed later. Appropriate use of the correction arena helps you be a more effective leader and be better able to accomplish the mission effectively. When prevention fails, you must take corrective action necessary to change the behavior. Remember, the goal is to change the behavior, not squash the individual. The goal is to bring the individual back above the standard or line of acceptability that was established in the prevention arena. There are several tools available to do this. As supervisors, you must be familiar with and be willing to use or recommend all of the following administrative tools for maintaining discipline. Feedback, formal and informal, for falling below the line of acceptability. Verbal and written counseling, admonishment and reprimand. Recommendation to the commander to establish an unfavorable information file, UIF on an individual or place a member on the control roster. Recommendation to commander administrative demotions used when one cannot achieve grade appropriate skill level not fulfilling AFI 36-2618 responsibilities not being fit. Non-recommendation for re-enlistment. Supervisor doesn't deny, only recommends denial. Referral performance report reports. Recommendation for administrative discharge or separation. When the Air Force separates members fa failing to meet standards of performance, conduct, or discipline, it promotes Air Force readiness and strengthens our standards of military service. Remember, administrative tools are corrective in nature, not punitive. If the administrative correction tools don't rehabilitate the person, this is where you move forward from correction to punishment the commander's only zone. Punishment. Punishment is the third arena in the DM. Punishment's purpose is to correct and rehabilitate those who repeatedly or blatantly violate standards. Only officers on G-Series orders can punish enlisted members and only through Article 15 or court's martial process. Commander-only discipline, punishment, includes Article 15, courts-martial, administrative demotions, and discharge characterization recommendations. A simple way to look at punishment is that something is being done to discourage the poor behavior from occurring again. It can come in, in the form of extra duties, loss of money, 
loss of freedom, reduction in rank, and less than honorable and dishonorable discharges. You often hear the word punishment associated with LOCs, LOAs, LORs, and UIFs. These are not punishment, but adverse administrative actions. Although they probably feel like punishment to the person receiving them, their administrative actions only and NCOs should never refer to them as punishment. The keys to effectively functioning in this arena is for you to know your subordinates well enough to be able to advise the commander on what will work best for your people. Can NCOs punish? No, but you learned you do carry out duties associated with punishment because any punishment requires careful consideration of all the facts. You as an NCO must be prepared to answer questions about such things as a subordinate's on duty, work performance and behaviors and off duty issues, including finances, family, education and second job. You should never tell commanders to take whatever action they deem appropriate. You should take the course of action you know that'll rehabilitate your subordinate without causing second and third order effects. In order to do that, you must not only know your people, but also always consider the unintended consequences of the punishment. Ask yourself if taking money is going to hurt his or her family. Will extra duty put him or her in a bind with the family, only adding to the problem? If one recommends restricting him or her to base and he or she is dependent on the income from his or her second job, are you really using the most effective rehab rehabilitative tool? The bottom line is that you should know your people so you can effectively advise the commander. In this section, you gained a greater understanding of how the DM discipline model and its three arenas, prevention, correction, and punishment work in unison. You saw the importance of laying down the framework in the first arena, prevention by setting the standard, which established your line of acceptability. You went to, on to learn about the second arena, correction, to bring your subordinates back to your line of acceptability. The last DM arena you covered was punishment. You learned that you're not in the driver's seat. However, you are a navigator for your commander on making the best choice in punishing airmen who fail to comply with standards. The knowledge built in this section on the DM is great, but acted upon knowledge is power. Let's apply some of the knowledge you've learned in this section about prevention, correction, and punishment with the following progress check. Now that you have a good understanding of the DM and its three arenas, prevent, correct, and punish, let's take a look at the substance that gives its momentum to run the PDP. Progress check, question number two. Progressive discipline process. You've learned about the progressive discipline process, PDP, and ALS. You've also learned that you must not only understand its various facets and tiered nature, but also use it accordingly as a supervisor. When it comes to the PDP model, it's a foundational tool to use with wisdom and discretion. One, establish standards. Just as, as in the prevention arena of the discipline model, this is where you clearly explain to your subordinates each standard and the line of acceptability. 
use this line of acceptability when measuring compliance with standards. This line can be moved to higher echelons, as mentioned in the article. The best enlisted leader I've ever met to this day. Two, monitor. To ensure compliance, monitor subordinate behavior and reinforce as needed. Supervisors often fail to fulfill this step because they believe that once they have set the standards, compliance will just naturally follow. Subordinates need to know they'll be held accountable for the established standards of behavior and performance and that their supervisors maintain oversight. This helps the subordinates feel that their supervisors are interested in what they're doing. It'll also help keep lines of communication open, maintain appropriate levels of performance, strengthen individuals, and subsequently enhance organizational discipline. Three, apply the PDP, progressive discipline process. When infractions occur and performance or behavior falls below the line of acceptability, you must apply the PDP. The actions used to modify subordinate behavior depends on how far the subordinate de deviates from the line of acceptability and the circumstances surrounding the infraction. Where you place them on the PDP is totally based on the severity of the infraction, level of responsibility, and your judgment. With that said, the way one supervisor responds to an infraction may vary when compared to another. Many factors may come into play with that to include things like AFSC, location of job, and the expectation of the supervisor. The PDP, Progressive Discipline Process, is critical to the correction arena of the DM. You should follow the steps listed when plotting the disciplinary situation on the PDP chart below. Step one, determine the infraction's distance from the line of acceptability's vertical line, illustrated on the diagram below. This is where you set the standard for others to follow. Step two, Look at the line that is to the far left of the diagram to draw a line horizontally toward the discipline tool appropriate for addressing the infraction. Step three, to identify the degree of severity, look at the bottom portion of the diagram. You've set your standard in the prevention arena and the first step of the PDP. You've monitored as required in the second step of PDP, and now it's time to apply the PDP. In accordance with AFI 36-2907, Unfavorable Information File, UIF Program, commanders, supervisors, and other persons in authority can issue administrative counseling, admonition, and reprimand. These actions are intended to improve, correct, and instruct subordinates who depart from standards or conduct or performance on or off duty and whose actions degrade the unit's mission. As an NCO, you as a supervisor should take the least amount of action necessary to correct behavior and then progress from there as needed. Let's say that again. The least amount of action necessary to correct behavior and then progress. With this in mind, consider the following principles. One, when conducting verbal and written counseling sessions, two-way communication is both appropriate and very effective at helping subordinates understand the reasons for and importance of meeting all standards. Two, there are times when one-way communication is appropriate. 
correcting recurring unacceptable behavior and stopping correcting safety violations. One-way communication can be in verbal or written form and typically used to admonish or reprimand. Three, written administrative actions, counselings, admonition, and reprimand are subject to the rules of access, protection, and disclosure outlined in the Privacy Act of 1974. The same rules apply to copies kept by supervisors and commanders as well as those filed in an individual's UIF or personnel information file. PIF. Raiders must consider making comments on the Raiders' performance report when they receive any of these adverse actions. Counseling, verbal or written. You may have administered either verbally or in writing letters of counseling to your subordinates to correct habits or shortcomings that affect job performance. This was the first tool you utilized to administratively or verbally get them back on track. However, you must understand that a counseling session should allow members to openly discuss the problem and help resolve the situation. After all, if you give them opportunities to discuss what they plan to do in order to correct the issue, they'll be more willing to correct their shortcomings. According to AFI 36-2907 UIF program paragraph 3.2, counseling helps people use good judgment, assume responsibility, and face and solve problems. When you are counseling, consider this. Counselors assist subordinates in developing skills, attitudes, and behaviors that are consistent with maintaining the Air Force's readiness. In addition, consider counseling when an individual receives harsher treatment for misconduct, Article 15. You, as a technical expert and supervisor, can effectively use formal or informal counseling to inform the person of the reason for the punishment and expected behavior in the future. There are three forms of counseling, informal, formal, and referral. Informal counseling, used this, used with minor misconduct and first-time offensives, can be an effective first step for you. It's a good idea to document verbal counseling sessions with the Memo for Record, MFR, that provides a brief description of matters discussed. Then sign and place in the member's personnel information file, PIF. Deciding whether to use an MFR comes down to your best judgment because only you know the subordinate and the situation well enough to decide. A good, a good rule of thumb is to write an MFR anytime you have to correct the same subordinate for the same infraction more than once. For example, if during the prevention stage you made your expectations clear, set clear standards, and created a climate of accountability, then your response to a first infraction can be as simple as a quick talk to remind a subordinate of the standard without documenting the incident in an MFR. A quick reminder gives subordinates the benefit of the doubt, no ill intent on the subordinate's part, which also helps build trust in the relationship. By you addressing the infraction, no matter how small, the member was held accountable and knows because you told him or her next time you'll have to document the occurrence. By doing this, you are hopefully preventing a potential discipline issue, which is the first P in PDP. An MFR is practically useful for documenting trends and accomplishing performance feedback and EPRs. Although it's not mandatory, it's a good practice to write up an MFR to, to capture the gist of verbal counseling, admonishment, and reprimand sessions. MFRs serve two important functions, 
First, MFRs serve as memory joggers that are useful when you supervise large numbers of people or you know you have addressed a particular airman about an infraction, but you can't remember how long ago or how many times you've reminded them. Second, in those cases where subordinates cannot or will not adjust to military life or subordinates who have decided to stop following the rules, a properly written MFR begins the paper trail needed to take appropriate administrative punitive or separation actions. Always begin MFRs associated with corrective actions with rank, name, and infraction, followed with the words, I verbally counseled him or her, I verbally admonished him or her, or I verbally reprimanded him or her. Starting MFRs with these words is important from an area defense counselor's and staff judge advocate's perspective because they eliminate confusion over what occurred and they indicate you actually spoke to the member. Documentation removes all doubt about what occurred during the verbal counseling or reprimand session. There's no requirement for the counselee to sign or even see the MFR. However, you must always sign and date it. If subordinates continue breaking the rules after a verbal counseling, move up or down the ladder of adverse administrative actions in the PDP with verbal or letters of counseling, admonishment, and reprimand in that order. MFR examples. A poor statement. Airman Smith was late for work for the third time this week. This leaves the ADC and SJA wondering if you actually said anything to Airman Smith. A better, a better statement would be, Airman Smith was late for work for the third time this week. I told him not to be late again. This is better, but it still leaves room for debate over whether Airman Smith clearly understands the standard. The best statement would be, Airman Smith was late for work for the third time this week. I verbally counseled him for being late and I reminded him of duty hours and his responsibility for getting to work on time. He indicated that he understood. Formal counseling is required when misconduct warrants stronger action than informal counseling or when the behavior has continued despite previous informal counseling efforts. Formal counseling is especially important for any behavior that's contrary to Air Force standards. Supervisors can use an AF Form 174, Record of, Indi Record of Individual Counseling, RIC, prepared IAW AFI 36-2907, unfavorable information file, or a letter of counseling LOC to record the counseling session. These provide records of positive or negative counseling that'll be useful during performance feedbacks and for creating a paper trail. You must take the time to prepare formal counseling. Ensure you include a good description of what the member did or failed to do, including specifics of the incident and the date of occurrence. Presenting the counseling to the individual gives him or her an opportunity to sign for receipt. The documentation needs to contain the date the individual actually received the letter of administrative action. In informal counseling, LOC, LOA, LOR, the acknowledgement should also include a statement indicating the indi individual understands his or her right to submit matters for consideration within three duty days. It's important for members to acknowledge this right, which preserves the usefulness of the documentation should subsequent disciplinary actions become necessary. If an individual refuses to acknowledge receipt, annotate above their signature block, member refused to acknowledge, initial and date the entry. The person issuing the letter should sign first as the issuer. 
the first individual should have the member sign for receipt of the letter within three duty days, a second signer, signature, second individual, by the member stating if they are going to or waive the right to respond, and then the final signature is the person issuing the letter. Be very careful to write all letters for adverse administrative action as if they were going to be used in court. Written in this meticulous manner, they'll be able to serve as a usable tool if an administrative discharge or court-martial becomes necessary. Since individuals have three duty days to respond, you must wait the three duty days before taking additional actions or forwarding the documentation for filing in the PIF. If members don't respond within three duty days, indicate that on the document and forward for filing in the member's PIF. On the other hand, if members do respond, you must consider all matters submitted and then decide to let the document stand as is, downgrade or upgrade the severity of the action, or in rare cases remove it altogether. Attach any response to the original document and file in its entirety in the individual's PIF or unfavorable information file, UIF. If the member is on a control roster, forward it to the first sergeant for appropriate actions associated with adding documents to one's UIF or control roster. Commanders are required to notify members in writing when adding or removing documents to an UIF control roster. You must be alert to the requirements of Article 31 before seeking information during a counseling session. If the counseling session involves a suspect in a criminal matter, you must advise a service member of his or her rights under Article 31 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice before questioning. Failure to do so will prevent use of the individual's statements or admissions in subsequent judicial actions. The rights of the accused section later in this chapter covers this in detail. Contact the Office of the Staff Judge Advocate or your First Sergeant for additional guidance on Article 31 rights. Referral counseling is used when you're aware of a problem a subordinate is experiencing that goes beyond the scope of the subordinate's and the supervisor's abilities. In this type of instance, the supervisor would appropriately refer the subordinate to one of the following individuals or agencies that normally handle referral situations. First Sergeant, Military Personnel Flight, Legal Office, Area Defense Council, Chaplain, Family, Support Center, Military Equal Opportunity, or Base Clinic Hospital. According to the PDP, after you've utilized the counseling stage, you should progress to admi admonition or reprimand. Admonitions and reprimands. An admonition, also known as an admon admonishment, admonishment, either verbal or written, is more severe than counseling. Use it for infractions serious enough to warrant admonishment, but not serious enough to warrant reprimand. A letter of admonishment indicates a mid-range level of written disapproval for serious infractions and or repeat infractions and is most often presented in a formal setting. A letter of admonition, LOA, or letter of reprimand, LOR, is appropriate when a letter of counseling has failed to correct a problem or when the misconduct is too serious for mere counseling. In this section, you'll only address administrative admonitions and reprimands as opposed to punitive reprimands administered because of either a court-martial conviction or non-judicial non Article 15 punishment. A reprimand, either verbal or written, is more severe than counseling or admonishment and indicates a stronger degree of official censure. 
Use an LOR for those acts not severe enough for non-judicial punishment, but in situations where verbal or written counseling or admonishment would not sufficiently address the misconduct. In addition, use LORs in those circumstances where counseling and admonishment failed in deterring the individual's undesirable conduct. An LOR indicates the highest degree of written censor for the most serious infractions and or repeat infractions and is always presented in a formal setting. It should be done in the most professional and serious way possible. It's a one-way communication. The subordinate may even be required to report in their service dress uniform and to stand at attention. This formality and tone helps the subordinate see the significance of his or her infraction. These actions help the subordinate see the significance of crossing the line of acceptability so drastically. Just like MFRs, LOCs, LOAs, and LORs serve to jog your memory, but they also serve as written documentation of actions taken to correct behavior when more severe action is called for, such as an Article 15, court-martial, or discharge. Because a possibility exists for LOCs, LOAs, and LORs to be used in support of a discharge process, they must contain certain content, meet all legal requirements, and be issued, signed, and filed in accordance with specific timelines. For example, LOCs, LOAs, and LORs must contain a Privacy Act statement, must clearly state what the member did or failed to do where and when the infraction occurred, expected future behavior, and the consequences of future infractions. These letters must also include a place for the counselee to acknowledge receipt of the letter and indicate that the counselee has three duty days to respond. Finally, the letters must contain a statement indicating whether the counselee responded. Scan QR code for an example. It's an interesting to note that traditionally enlisted members rarely receive an LOA, but according to the PDP, they should be used to correct behavior if an LOC doesn't work and the infraction doesn't warrant an LOR. Unfavorable Information File, UIF Commander Directed. The Unfavorable Information File, UIF, is a paper or electronic file maintained by the Military Personnel Section, MPS, once a UIF is established, it shows up on personnel reports for as long as it exists. UIFs can exist for only one year or as long as several years depending on the type of documents it contains and when documents were placed in the folder. The most important thing to remember about UIFs is that they indicate the person in question has committed one or more very, or one or more very serious breaches of discipline. While the UIF exists, NCOs must consider its contents when making personnel recommendations such as promotion, cross-training, special duty, assignments, and permanent change of station moves, re-enlistment, deployments, temporary duties, and advanced training. Reference AFI 36-2907 Unfavorable Information File for further detailed information. Control Rosters Commander Directed Placement on the control roster is the most serious of all administrative actions. Commanders may direct supervisors to write an EPR when placing members on and removing them from the control roster. Members may only remain on the control roster for six consecutive months. Commanders initiate more severe action for members not rehabilitated in this time. 
control roster is a six-month observation period for individuals whose duty performance is substandard or who fail to meet or maintain Air Force standards. Commanders should periodically counsel personnel on the control roster about their improvement or failure to improve and have the authority to remove a member from the control roster early, regardless of how long the action was on file. The next DM arena is no longer just changing behavior, but involves punishing as well. The following is also commander only area of the PDP. Article 15 commander directed. Although commanders initiate and issue Article 15s, NCOs play a significant role in the process. You're expected to make recommendations to the commander on the punishment issued to your subordinates. You cannot do that if you haven't established the rapport you need you read about in the prevention arena of the DM. As a minimum, you should know enough about your airmen to make a punishment recommendation that not only fits the crime, but that helps motivate the person to change his or her behavior. Punishment shouldn't be too easy or too harsh. Always remember prudence over justice. Prudence first, justice second, means to always consider the facts and extenuating circumstances surrounding a situation. This will ensure you treat people in a fair and equitable manner while still ensuring the correction or punishment fits the crime. Although we can legally throw the book at someone, that's almost never the prudent thing to do. For example, reducing a married person's pay and a single person's pay almost never produces the same effect. It may be devastating to the married member, but barely phase a single person if the decision is determined to reduce pay. Of course, the opposite could be true in some cases. Another example is limiting one's freedom. Restricting one's ability to socialize is probably much more effective on single people than on married people. Regardless of the punishment or the offense, you must ensure other members of the unit do not treat members undergoing punishment unprofessionally. This is an important part of maintaining good order and discipline. Below are a few examples of NJP for enlisted members found in AFI 51-202 Table 3.1, Enlisted Punishments. Finally, one of the goals of the Article 15 process is to rehabilitate offenders. Because of the focus on rehabilitation, it's unprofessional to continuously remind members of their infraction or offenses. Instead, NCOs should take the high road and consider the first day of a member's punishment as the first day of the member's journey toward full recovery. Encourage that recovery by treating the member as you wish to be treated. The Area Defense Council, ADC, is a certified judge advocate to perform defense counsel duties. They're assigned outside the local chain of command with the responsibility of vigorously and ethically representing their clients. Although NCOs don't have a significant role in the court-martial process, the ADC may ask you to testify in the court-martial process. The ADC may ask you to testify as a character witness. Just as with the Article 15 process, you cannot provide honest testimony about someone's character if you do not know the person. You can't honestly testify if you have not established the rapport you read about in the prevention arena of the discipline model. Before agreeing to testify as a character witness, NCOs should weigh carefully many, many of the same issues they considered before making a recommendation for punishment during the Article 15 process. NCOs are often tasked to conduct informal investigations about potential UCMJ infractions. 
Sometimes these investigations lead to simple corrective actions and other times the results may lead to Article 15 action and even court martial. Now that you have seen the DM and the PDP, let's see how they work together. As you can see, the DM and the PDP have a congruent and cooperative relationship. If you are effective in the correction arena of the DM, of which you establish the line of acceptability, among other things, you may not have to fully use the PDP. What makes the correction arena of the discipline model actually work is the PDP. The key to both is using the least force necessary to change the behavior and then progressing as needed. If you're the supervisor who has a stack of LOCs for the same step standard behavior for an individual, you haven't effectively used the PDP and the concept of correction. As you follow the PDP theory, you may be led out of the correction arena of the DM into the punishment arena. This is the far right or bottom of the commander's only side of the PDP. Well, in this section, you gained a broader understanding of the DM and PDP and how they work together to set the standard through discipline. The discipline model, DM, is a system of three arenas that if used correctly can help uphold standards and discipline in the Air Force. The three arenas consist of prevention, correction, and punishment. They're intended to, to build upon one another, and if taken seriously, each preceding arena can serve to preclude the following arena. Then, you moved on to learn about the PDP. You grasped that it's a foundational tool like a compass to help you determine exactly where the violation falls on that chart. Now, with your understanding of the secret formula, you can apply it to mitigate corrective and punishment actions from occurring. This, in turn, will most likely ease the pressure you experience while having to issue paperwork or discussing punishment actions with your leadership to rehabilitate subordinates who fail to meet Air Force standards. The next time you have to determine where an infraction falls on the chart when it comes to the PDP, you will know exactly what course of action to take. This will help you reach your desired outcome while maintaining a positive relationship with the person or group involved. With the fresh perspective of, on DM and PDP, let's apply what you've learned in the following progress check. Then you'll move on to the roles and responsibilities of an NCO and knowing your limits. Progress check, question number three. Roles and responsibilities. You may recall the reduction in force or RIF that took place in 2014. The total number of active duty enlisted personnel impacted by it was over 15,000 voluntarily or involuntarily separated. With that in mind, the amount of people we have to complete mission requirements is less than numbers. Therefore, you as an NCO have been charged with more roles, responsibilities, and bigger shoes to fill. You may have experienced it with mission or non-mission related additional duties. You may not have noticed it at first, but this may have shifted the roles of supervision down to your level. What this means is that you need to raise your situational awareness. All too often, supervisors rely solely on the first sergeant when discipline issues get out of the hand. This is unacceptable because you, the supervisor, are responsible for your people, and as a supervisor, you must increase your knowledge of this process. It is your responsibility to do what's best for the institution and for the airmen. Sharing the load and ensuring we have a disciplined force. 
The enlisted force structure states that discipline falls not only on the first sergeant and senior NCO's shoulders, but it's also an NCO's responsibility. In this section, you'll cover the NCO rank and authority and the seven basic rights of the accused. Lastly, you'll move on to becoming familiar with your limits and how to treat those accused. This will enhance your abilities within your scope of control and will assist you in handling disciplinary issues that may occur. Now that you understand what you'll be covering, let's take a look at how you're empowered by your rank and authority. NCO Rank and Authority As members of the profession of arms, all enlisted members swore to support and defend the Constitution of the United States and to obey the orders of all officers appointed over them. All NCOs have been delegated the authority necessary to exercise leadership commensurate with their rank and their assigned responsibility. You carry out the orders of those appointed over you by virtue of the authority vested in your rank and by effectively employing personnel, material, and other resources under your control. You represent the Air Force NCO Corps to everyone you encounter. Your person, personal integrity, loyalty, and leadership, dedication, and devotion to duty must remain above reproach. As an Air Force leader, manager, and supervisor, you must... Uphold Air Force policies, traditions, and standards. By word and example, you must optimize the Air Force as a profession and way of life for the military and civilian communities. In the exercise of your duties, you give orders. The enlisted force structure is a great resource for explanation of some of those duties. Details of specific and general responsibilities for all enlisted members are contained in AFI 36-2618, the enlisted force structure. General responsibilities apply to all airmen, regardless of rank or duty position. Chapter 4 of AFI 36-2618, Enlisted Force Structure, details specific NCO responsibilities. It states that NCOs must... 4.1.1, accept and execute all duties, instructions, responsibilities, and lawful orders in a timely and efficient manner, lead and develop subordinates, and exercise effective followership in mission accomplishment, place the requirements of their official duties and responsibilities ahead of their personal desires. NCOs have the authority to issue lawful orders appropriate for the completion of their assigned tasks. 4.1.5 clearly states to clearly meet and strive to exceed the standards and expectations levied upon junior enlisted airmen. Optimize excellence and lead by example through exhibiting professional behavior, military bearing, respect for authority, and the highest standards of dress and appearance. Instill professional behaviors in subordinates. Correct those who violate standards. Think about how you handle these responsibilities every day and how this has made a difference in developing, maintaining, and enforcing discipline in your duty section or organization. NCO authority is defined as the right to act and command. One of the three legal sources of your NCO authority is Article 91 of the UCMJ. Article 91 describes insubordinate conduct toward a warrant officer, non-commissioned officer, or petty officer. This article ensures others obey your orders and protects you from assault, insult, and disrespect. For example, if you're the NCOIC of a section and an airman is rude, vulgar, or makes inappropriate comments to you or about you, he or she may have violated Article 91. 
The second source of your legal authority from the UCMJ is Article 92. Article 92 discusses the repercussions for failure to obey an order or regulation. This article covers anyone who has a duty to obey an order, has knowledge of the order, and has violated or failed to obey with the lawful order or regulation. Before flexing this, muscle of the UCMJ, consider that if the accused attempted the task but was unable to complete it due to a lack of training or ability, you should not pursue disciplinary or punitive actions. Also, if the order was unlawful, for example, go make me a sandwich, the airman is not guilty of Article 92. Remember that your spoken directions are orders, even if you don't say this is a direct order. One more article that'll provide you a legal authority as an NCO is Article 7, Apprehension. As an NCO, the UCMJ authorizes you to apprehend individuals in certain situations. If you truly believe a crime is about to happen, drinking and driving, fighting, and sexual assault, try and stop it from happening without placing yourself into jeopardy. Using your rank or authority, order the individual to turn over the keys, go back to his or her room, or separate the airman quarreling. If the airman disobeys your direct order, you have the authority to quell quarrels, phrase and disorders among persons subject to the UCMJ and to apprehend persons subject to the UCMJ who take part therein. To apprehend someone, you must verbally inform the person you're apprehending him or her and clearly inform the in individual why you are doing so. Earned authority is another source of NCO authority, while legal authority holds airmen accountable when they fail to meet standards. Earned authority encourages airmen to trust you and want to follow you based on your referent power. Some of your earned authority will come as you progress through the ranks. Some of it will come when you build a solid reputation with your subordinates. While this type of authority takes time to build, you'll find it benefits outweigh the amount of dedication integrity, excellence, and sincerity you must display to earn it. NCO rank and authority are important to maintaining discipline of your subordinates and understanding their basic rights is almost impor always important. Now that you're aware of the authority associated with your rank, it's important to understand the seven basic rights of the accused to maintain your credibility. You may have seen it firsthand, airmen put in positions of authority but lack the competence needed because they are unaware of what they can or cannot do. Let's begin building your confidence by looking at the seven basic rights of the accused. Seven ba basic rights of the accused. One, presumption of innocence. Two, protection from com compulsory self-incrimination. Three, pre-trial investigation. Four, representation by counsel. Five, fair and impartial trial. Six, right of appeal. Seven, protection from double jeopardy. One, presumption of innocence. Although we may often seem to operate as if someone is guilty until proven innocent, it's supposed to be the other way around. Treating someone as innocent until proven guilty requires you to invoke an important element of our core values. Guilt must be beyond a reasonable doubt for court-martials and be established by legal and competent evidence. In cases of LORs, LOAs, and even NJPs, apply a preponderance of the evidence standard, which is simply more likely than not, you shouldn't pass up opportunity to address misconduct and rehabilitate members with LOA, LOR, and NJP. This evidence can be direct, circumstantial, or both. Direct evidence, 
evidence that stands on its own to prove an alleged fact, such as a testimony of a witness or who says he or she saw a defendant pointing a gun at a victim during a robbery, direct proof of an act, such as a testimony by a witness about what that witness personally saw or heard or did. Circumstantial evidence tends to prove a fact indirectly, which alone or together with other facts or circumstances, one may reasonably infer the existence or non-existence of a fact of issue. A reasonable doubt is a doubt based on reason and common sense. A reasonable doubt is a doubt based on reason and common sense. A reasonable doubt isn't mere speculation. It's an honest, conscientious doubt suggested by the evidence or lack of it in the case. An absolute or mathematical certainty isn't required. The burden of proof lies with the government. The accused doesn't have to raise a defense. Not only does the accused not have to raise a defense, the accused are entitled to protection from compulsory self-incrimination, which is a second right we'll address. Two, protection from compulsory self-incrimination. The Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and Article 31 of the UCMJ prohibit self-incrimination. Preventing and or discouraging self-incrimination is perhaps a supervisor's greatest challenge because of our natural curiosity to find out what happened. However, never compel airmen to incriminate themselves. Never interrogate or question people suspected of an offense without Air Force Form 1168, rights of the suspected accused. Advising them of their rights, similar to the civilian Miranda warning, telling them what the offense is, advising them that they do not have to make any statements, and advising them that any statements they make, oral or written, may be used as evidence in court-martial. Article 31, Rights Advisement, is a military version of the civilian Miranda warning. When given to the accused, the advisement of rights must be read and explained to the accused, and whoever is given the advisement needs to be certain the accused understands his or her rights. Oftentimes, NCOs are unsure of when to advise someone of his and her rights. Remember, it is all about protecting one's rights, and it's quite simple. If you suspect a crime has been committed and you intend to question the individual, you must perform a rights advisement. Three, pre-trial investigation. When people are accused of a crime and been given the rights advisement, a pre-trial investigation usually follows. The pre-trial investigation is a third basic right and is covered by Article 32 of the UCMJ. A pre-trial investigation is always held before a general court-martial and is similar to a civilian grand jury process. Article 32 entitles the accused to full participation during the pre-trial investigation to include full disclosure and advisement of the charge, right to cross-examine witnesses, right to present anything in defense or mitigation, fair and impartial inquiry, right to representation by counsel during the investigation. Four, representation by counsel. The fourth basic right of the accused is for the individual to have representation by counsel. Military counsel is always free, but the member does have the option to hire a civilian attorney at his or her own expense. If the accused elects to hire a civilian counsel, the military counsel acts as an associate counsel, unless excused by the accused. Five, fair and impartial trial. 
Whether represented by military or civilian counsel, the accused has a right to a fair and impartial trial. In order to guarantee a fair and impartial trial, the Area Defense Council is always a tenant unit on military installation. This allows them to have a separate chain of command. In addition to a separate chain of command requirement, three articles of the UCMJ also help guarantee a fair and impartial trial. Article 27 requires a trial counsel and defense counsel to have similar qualifications whenever possible. Article 37 prohibits unlawful influence. Non, no convening authority or commander can censor or reprimand a court or any court member in an attempt to influence his or her decisions. No one can coerce or influence the actions of the court martial. Article 41 allows the accused to challenge the judge and members of the court martial for cause. That is, if the accused has reason to believe the judge or the members of the court martial will not act in good faith, if the court martial's findings result in a guilty verdict, the accused becomes the convicted. However, the accused still have two very important rights, the right of appeal and protection from former jeopardy. Six, right of appeal. When dealing with judicial proceedings, the convicted has a right to appeal the findings and sentence of a military court. Although the convicted can choose to waive the appeal process, some sentences, example, death penalty, require an automatic appeal regardless if the convicted wishes to waive the appeal. If military counsel is used, all military appeals are at no expense to the convicted and the member has a right to file a petition for review with the civilian federal appellate court after all military appeals are exhausted. The government pays for the cost of the court except when the convicted elects to use civilian counsel. Members who accept non-judicial Article 15 proceedings have the right to appeal both the merits and the amount of punishment. A person punished under this article who considers his punishment unjust or disproportionate to the offense may, through proper channels, appeal to the next superior authority. The appeal shall be promptly forwarded and decided, but the person punished may in the meantime be required to undergo the punishment adjudged. Accepting an Article 15 is not an admission of guilt, but a choice of forum. Members are simply choosing the Article 15 process in lieu of court-martial. Although adverse administrative actions aren't judicial or non-judicial in nature, but administrative rehabilitative tools, Air Force members still have the right to appeal or reboot most adverse administrative actions. Members can appeal to motions, but the appeal authority depends on the member's rank. Members have three day, duty days to submit rebuttal documents for consideration under the following situations. Optional entries only in favorable information files, UIF. Rebuttal is not an option on mandatory UIF documents such as courts, marshals, conviction, or Article 15s where the punishment exceeds one month. Placement on a control roster. When administrative rehabilitative tools are issued, LOC, LOA, or LOR, you and the commander can take one of three actions upon receiving rebuttal documents. One, let the adverse administrative actions stand. Two, reduce the adverse administrative actions. Changes an LOR to an LOC or choose not to place member on a control roster. Three, remember the adverse administrative action altogether. The rebuttal convinces the supervisor or commander that the adverse administrative action is inappropriate. 
7. Former Jeopardy. Even after exhausting all of their appeal options, members still have one very important right protection from former jeopardy. Former jeopardy is commonly referred to as double jeopardy and is covered under the Fifth Amendment and Article 44 of the UCMJ. Both prohibit any person from being tried twice for the same offense. However, constitutional law has been interpreted by the courts to mean that no person can be tried more than once by the same jurisdiction. Therefore, members can be tried twice for the same offense, but only if the trial is by a higher jurisdiction. For example, trial in a state court is an illegal bar to a later prosecution in a federal court based on the same act or omission. The imposition and enforcement of disciplinary punishment under Article 15 for any act or omission isn't a bar to trial by court-martial for a serious crime or offense growing out of the same act or omission and not properly punishable under this article. The fact that a disciplinary punishment has been enforced may be shown by the accused upon trial, and when so shown, shall be considered in determining the measure of punishment to be adjudged in the event of a finding of guilty. Although trial and prosecution by separate jurisdiction is possible, such dual prosecutions rarely serve good order and discipline or serve justice. Therefore, the Air Force doesn't pursue court-martial or Article 15 action for the same act or omission for members tried and convicted in state court. For example, if the federal government convicts someone, the state could try could still try them for the same act. However, if the federal government were to court-martial someone, the federal government cannot prosecute them for the same act as they are the sovereign. Only the Secretary of the Air Force can authorize exceptions into this policy. Although the Air Force doesn't pursue judicial or non-judicial actions against members convicted in civilian court, all administrative actions remain an option and their use is highly encouraged. Now take what you've learned about the seven rights of the accused and move on to the next step in addressing your roles and responsibilities in protecting those rights by looking at knowing your limits. Knowing your limits. It's imperative that you recognize the fact that you're not a professional investigator or attorney. So never try to act like one and always seek their advice. As the experts, they provide advice that helps you take appropriate actions and will keep you from doing something wrong. Always consult the SJA, OSI, and SFS when directed to investigate an incident, dealing with violations of the UCMJ and you intend to pursue adverse administrative actions or your commander intends to pursue punishment, you are unsure of how to proceed. To re-emphasize the rights advisement, remember, use it if you suspect someone of committing a crime and you intend to question them. If you ever encounter a situation where you find yourself talking with or questioning someone and they admit to committing a crime or you suspect they committed a crime, immediately stop and advise him or her of their rights in writing. If he or she elects not to answer questions, you must cease the discussion. It's also important to know your limits when it comes to your personal values and or emotions. Personal values and beliefs can have powerful influences on how you react to situations. It may cloud your judgment and cause you to take actions, make decisions, or display behaviors that are less than ideal. If your values and beliefs conflict with that of the person accused, you may not be able to handle the situation in an objective manner. 
You may even advocate for justice without considering prudence. If personal values or beliefs interfere with your ability to protect the rights of the accused, you must immediately inform your chain of command. Failing to do so could harm the individual's case and or the government's case as well. Finally, always refer airmen accused of a crime to the ADC. The sooner they speak with an attorney, the sooner their rights can be protected. Knowing the rights of the accused and knowing your own limits are important. However, members accused of crimes continue working in the same unit. When this happens, it's very important to remember innocent until proven guilty because some crimes can quickly polarize a unit. Treatment of the accused. Knowing your limits goes hand in hand with how you and others treat the accused. With an understanding of the seven basic rights, consider this question. Should the treatment of the accused depend on the nature of the crime? Absolutely not. This is an important point because more often than not, we forget to presume people are innocent until proven guilty regardless of the nature of the crime. Unfortunately, human nature is such that we tend to believe the worst is true, that the accused is guilty despite what the law says you are supposed to believe. We also forget that whatever an individual is accused of, the accused still has rights, and as an NCO, you must help protect those rights, no matter how you feel about the individual or the crime. Ensuring people inside and outside the section or unit continue to provide fair and equal treatment to the accused may be one of the greatest challenges. Different crimes and the people who commit them can affect sections, units, and the members very differently. First of all, it's not unusual for the accused of a crime to return to his or her unit and even perform primary duties while awaiting the outcome of a pretrial investigation, court-martial, and or Article 15. When members accused of crimes return to their units, rumors will fly. This always affects unit morale, and depending on the crime can even polarize a unit or section. This is especially true when the person accused of wrongdoing is well-liked and respected. Members of the unit usually fall into the I don't believe it or the he's guilty camp. Regardless of which camp people choose, they'll talk about the case and some will even say or do very mean and inappropriate things to the accused. As an NCO, it's your responsibility to squelch rumors, to keep others from discussing the issue and to keep people from treating the accused badly. Remember the old adage, treat others as they'd like to be treated. During the pretrial and the Article 15 process or courts martial process, you might be the only person standing between the accused and members of your unit who are saying or doing very mean and inappropriate things to the accused. Protecting the rights of the accused and ensuring their fair and impartial treatment can be extremely difficult especially when your personal values and beliefs come into play. Nevertheless, you must persevere. In the Profession of Arms book, General Welsh states, everyone should feel respected. As leaders, this is an opportunity to walk the talk. Knowing the basic rights of the accused, recognizing your personal limits, and assuring proper treatment of the accused will help ensure the military justice system continues to be one of the fairest systems in the world. It is important that members of your unit do not treat an accused member poorly. If your unit does not treat the accused with dignity and respect and you do not ensure others do so, 
it impacts your subordinates and your effectiveness as an NCO. Your team may lose trust and faith in you, division may be created in the work center, and it could even push the accused to commit drastic measures as a result. Basically, this goes against the right of the accused that says, people are innocent until proven guilty, and shows you as an NCO are not doing your duty of protecting the rights of our people. NCOs must know their limits, especially when it comes to personal values and beliefs. You must understand that you are not an attorney and you should consult the SJA, OSI, or SFS when your decisions or action may include adverse administrative or punitive actions. Treatment of the accused shouldn't depend on the nature of the crime. You must presume people are innocent until proven guilty. You must kill rumors to protect the accused and the unit. You've heard during your career and in this chapter, take care of your people and they'll take care of you. But this doesn't just mean giving them rewards, time off, or submitting awards for them. This goes way beyond that. This is about you being capable of really taking care of them when things start to fall apart. Don't be that NCO that solely relies on your leaders to make informed decisions to take care of your airmen. In this section, you covered the NCO rank and authority and the seven basic rights of the accused. Lastly, you moved on to becoming familiar with your limits and how to treat those accused of commitment, committing a crime. This will enhance your abilities within your scope of control and will assist you in handling disciplinary issues that may occur. Now you have an understanding of your responsibilities associated with your rank and what's within your span of control. Take a moment to check your progress with the question below. Then you'll move on to see how everything you've learned in this chapter could have a positive or negative impact on your people, your abilities as an NCO, and your unit. Progress check, question number four. Impact of discipline. You've gone over a lot of information when it comes to discipline, so now what? That's correct, what's most likely to happen if you apply the concepts you learned. You know why you should use them, but how will you use them? Imagine an organization that flourishes at every moment with minimal amount of violations. The violations that do occur are immediately corrected and every NCO sets the same standards across the board when it comes to the organization's airmen. You're comfortable and confident that when another NCO approaches to discuss a concern, it is legitimate and not bias-based. This can breed a unit that is highly effective in developing every airman. As you read the following material, you should consider how you can improve your success by using the concepts in this chapter. You'll start by looking at the impact of discipline on subordinate effectiveness, then move on to NCO effectiveness and mission effectiveness. Let's start by taking a look at how discipline can impact your subordinates. Subordinate effectiveness. You as an NCO are responsible for holding your subordinates accountable. To be exact, according to your Air Force core values, it states all of us must accept accountability and practice justice which means that all Air Force personnel must possess integrity first. As you learned in this chapter, dare to believe you can achieve perfection and go after it. Remember the article, The Best Enlisted Leader I've Ever Met? Lieutenant Colonel Hentz states, you'll get far closer than if you take the high road. Your airmen will rise to the level where you set the expectation. Success and morale are synergistic and powerful and breed thriving attitudes. Therefore, when you establish the line of acceptability, ensure it stays in place. 
you should never adjust the line of acceptability to the substandard performance of others. NCO effectiveness. The article, The Best Enlisted Leader I've Ever Met, shared in this chapter, talked about an experience a commissioned officer had when he was a young enlisted airman. The enlisted leader that positively impacted him was a non-commissioned officer. It wasn't a four-star general or the chief master sergeant of the Air Force. It was someone who was directly working with him each and every day. You have the same opportunity to motivate airmen that want to effectively accomplish tasks you assign to them. Your effectiveness will come from investing time in your people, knowing what drives them, and as a Lieutenant Colonel Hint said in this article, one Saturday, one Saturday with an airman gained an NCO the complete and permanent loyalty of his airmen. Pay close attention to your people and use opportunities to take your work relationship to the highest level. As you learned in this chapter, discipline starts with you. From understanding your scope of responsibilities to enforcing standards, you set forward for others. In a perfect world, it would be easy to develop die-hard followers that are willing to follow you anywhere at any time. Your actions are what set the example for others to follow. The character you display can be good or bad. This is your role. Decide whether you want to cast shadows bad behaviors or lights, good behaviors for others to follow. Enlisted force structure. AFI 36-2618 enlisted force structure states, NCOs must clearly meet and strive to exceed the standards and expectations levied upon junior enlisted airmen, epitomize excellence and lead by example through exhibiting professional behavior military bearing, respect for authority, and the highest standards of dress and appearance, instill professional behaviors in subordinates, correct those who violate standards. 4.1.10, appropriately recognize and reward those individuals whose military conduct and duty performance clearly exceed established standards. Also, hold subordinates accountable when they do not meet established standards. Grasping the lesson concepts associated in this chapter with discipline will help you implement measures needed to correct infractions from occurring or getting out of control. You've been given the tools you need to perform in the correction arena or help you, your leadership in making a decision in the punishment arena of the DM. Mission effectiveness. As a leader in the military, your abilities to carry out orders has become second nature. You've become disciplined without being aware of it. Your mentors and leaders have instilled behaviors you have and you continue to develop those traits in order to take care of the next generation of airmen. Teams that have good practices when it comes to discipline perform beyond limits imaginable, which contribute to mission effectiveness. Your airmen that are a part of your team are disciplined based off the standards you set forth. Those same standards develop disciplined airmen who become remarkable leaders and military service members for their country. This section started by looking at the impact of discipline on subordinate effectiveness. Your subordinates could be more effective if you set the standard by establishing the line of acceptability. That'll ensure they're performing the standards you've set forth. Next, you looked at NCO effectiveness where you saw that your effectiveness may be enhanced if you follow discipline concepts. You can figure out what motivates your people by spending a little more time with them. Additionally, using discipline can enhance accomplishment of the mission if you set the standard for others to follow. 
you should now be able to answer the questions posed at the beginning of this point. What's most likely to happen if you apply these concepts? Why should you use them? The answer to both of these questions is simple. Increased effectiveness. Progress check questions five through seven. Summary. In this chapter, you built your knowledge on discipline de definitions and how self-discipline is related to group and unit discipline. You also examined the DM, discipline model. You went over the prevention, correction, and punishment arena. You saw how the DM, discipline model, is intertwined with the PDP and the importance of understanding the threshold in each arena of the DM and where they fall within the PDP. Then, you looked at roles and responsibilities an NCO should fulfill when it comes to discipline. This helped you discover the seven basic rights of the accused and the importance of treating everyone with dignity and respect. You also had an opportunity to apply what you learned during the learning opportunities and progress checks. Finally, you ended this chapter by covering the impact of discipline on subordinate NCO and mission effectiveness via elements such as accountability, discipline, and the enlisted force structure. As you learned in this chapter, our family business, U.S. Air Force, runs off of discipline. You now have the ability to change the direction when it's wrong. Hold those around you accountable for taking the easy way out because it's much easier to follow others' directions even when it's wrong because no one wants to compromise their relationships, friendships, or feel like they don't fit in with other airmen. Why is that? If you follow the direction even when it's wrong, you're guilty or undermining the effectiveness of your subordinate yourself as an NCO, and your unit. Therefore, it's up to you as an NCO to change the direction by using discipline, even when others are being naysayers to ensure that order, standards, and regulations are followed for subordinate NCO and mission effectiveness. You, as an NCO, hold the key to the success of our nation's security and it starts with creating disciplined airmen. Sure, you could act completely oblivious to actions that are foul in the unit, but when you do this, you are just as guilty for not having the willingness to speak up and hold others accountable. Hopefully now, you as an enlisted leader understand discipline's importance and its impact on mission accomplishment. As an Air Force NCO, it is critical that you employ these preventive and corrective methods effectively to reduce the number of disciplinary problems in your unit and our great Air Force. Ensuring that the Air Force core values are integrated firmly into your personal habits will provide examples for your subordinates to follow. Practicing effective discipline methods and enforcing Air Force standards are paramount in your quest to be an effective leader. As it was said at the beginning of the chapter, few professions depend on discipline as much as the armed forces. The Air Force is a collection of individuals who must set aside personal interests, concerns, and fears in order to work as a team to accomplish the mission. The instrument that allows the Air Force to accomplish so many great things is discipline. More importantly, effective discipline is not possible without you. The NCO leading the way by applying the discipline principles you've learned here in the most effective manner possible. Knowing what you now know, if you or one of your subordinates were to be promoted and put in a position above their previous role where they will be leading teams, you should be better equipped to help them as well as yourself for the transition.